0: Father in heaven, we are grateful to go through a very, very important study. Lord, I need your spirit. I am asking you to enable me to articulate what your thoughts are so clearly that your people might be blessed. And Father, I just pray that while you're blessing everyone, don't pass me by. I ask for revival in my own heart as we press together and study together. Grant us the presence of your Spirit, Lord, and truly open our eyes and help us behold wondrous things out of your Word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Proverbs 23. We're going to Proverbs 23rd chapter, and I want you to see what the Bible says in Proverbs 23. We're going to consider verse 26 because we learned last night that what God wants is very clearly expressed in Proverbs 23 and verse 26. And when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Proverbs 23 and verse 26, My son. Give me what? Thine heart. Let thine eyes observe my ways. God wants our heart. And the truth of the matter is, is that when the Bible says, my son, give me thine heart, don't, don't get confused on that. What God wants is not for us to actually give him our hearts. The word heart means mind. And we really can't give God our mind. But what we can do is do something very important. Go to Revelation 3. Let me, show you, let me show you the process of how God gets access to our minds. So notice what the Bible says. Revelation, we're going to chapter 3. This morning, we looked at what the Bible says as it relates to a very terrible condition that God's people are in in these last moments in earth's history. And that condition was what is generally called the Laodicean condition, a lukewarm condition. And as bad as it is, I'm thankful that God has a remedy. The remedy is found in verse 18 of Revelation 3. And it says in Revelation 3, 18, God says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with I solve, that thou mayest see. Now verse 20, notice what Jesus says. Behold, I do what? I stand at the door. And what's he doing? He's knocking. And then he says, if any man will let me come in, then I will sup with him and he with me. Jesus is knocking at your heart's door and my heart's door. So, when somebody knocks at your door, you do need to give them something. What you need to do is give them permission to come in. Do you understand that? When somebody knocks at our physical door, we need to give them permission, come in. And then they come in. Jesus says in Proverbs 23 and verse 26, he says, my son... Give me thine heart. What he's not asking you to do is to take your mind and say, here, because we can't do that. But what we can do is give him permission to take it. Christ is knocking at our heart's door. And he wants permission to come in. And when he comes in, he's going to do something wonderful. Notice what the Bible says in the book of Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. Look at the wonderful thing that God does when we let him in. The Bible says in Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, notice when we give Jesus permission, he's knocking at our heart's door. He wants us to give him permission to do something. There was a man who was literally God's anointed His name is Dr. Nan Wong. He was my heart surgeon. He was God's instrument. Dr. Wong, God skilled and blessed and enabled to do what paperwork said was impossible. But Dr. Wong could not have performed. The surgery on my heart without me giving him permission. I had to sign the document. Jesus wants to do something. The great physician, he wants to do something with our heart. And it's a whole lot deeper than what the earthly surgeons can do. What Jesus wants to do is found in Ezekiel 36, right there in verse 26. And what does the Bible say? It says a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. But in order for him to put the new heart, what does he have to do with the old? It says, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. So when God says, my son, give me thine heart. And let thine eyes observe my ways. He's saying, give me permission that I can now perform the surgery that only Jesus can perform. That he can take away the original heart condition and he can put a brand new heart inside of each and every one of us. Why does he want to do that? Same book, Proverbs 23. Go back there. In Proverbs 23, same book, why is it that he wants to give us a new heart? Well, it's very simple. The reason why, he says, give me this heart. Give me permission that I can take away this heart and I can put a new heart, a new mind. Why does he want to do that? It's very simple. The first portion of Proverbs 23, but now I want you to look at verse 7. The Bible says in Proverbs 23, right there in verse 7, just the first portion of the verse, for as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. God wants your heart. God wants my heart because God knows that when he gets our heart, we will become like him. This is the central point in the great controversy between Christ and Satan over man. Satan says, I want your heart. I want your mind. God says, I want your mind. And there's a great cosmic battle going on over the human mind right now. Great cosmic battle. Every time you drive down the streets of Los Angeles, you see billboards that are saying, give me your heart. I want you to be in harmony with me. I want your thoughts to be fixed on what we're promoting This is why parents, this is why adults, this is why children. We have to get to that precious place that when we drive down the road, we need to shine our shoes well and make it look attractive because often we will have to stare at our feet. Sometimes when you go on airplanes, I had to fly here. I definitely didn't drive. And sometimes I don't have anything. The only screen I was looking at on that airplane was my computer. But sometimes you can see things in your peripheral if you have somebody next to you or sitting in front of you and they are watching that which is called ungodly. And it's so easy for the mind to look and to get caught up. And so what you got to do sometimes you got to say, well, let's take a look at my feet here. Sometimes you got to do whatever it takes that you keep your eyes off of that which is distracting. Everywhere we go Christ is making suggestions. You see, when we go down the streets of Los Angeles, we're seeing suggestions from the devil that are constantly letting us know we want you to be like this. And the devil wants to erase the image of God from humanity and he's doing it. You know, we are the only species that is confused on what we are. Birds know that they are birds. Horses know that they are horses. Cows know that they are cows. Even cockroaches know that they are cockroaches. But a man doesn't know if he's a man or a woman. A woman doesn't know if she's a man or a woman. We are the only confused species of all the creation of God. And yet we're the most intelligent, so we say. Often the animals are a rebuke to humanity. My brothers and sisters, we are living in a time where the devil is making suggestions to the minds of people. And we got to learn how to guard our precious minds. Guard well the avenues of your soul, what you let in it. And so God says, the reason I do it, you see, the same way when I go down the streets of Los Angeles, I got to be very careful what I allow my eyes to behold. But boy, I tell you, I can look full and free when I walk in the scenes of nature. I can look at that grass. I can look at those trees. I can see those evergreens. I can see those mountains. I could see all of that. And God says, all right, now I'm talking. God's doing his rework on our minds. That's why the Lord said, get out of these cities into the country. That's why he said it. He was He, he wants to develop us. He really wants to. And so it is that When we look at this, God says that that's why I want your mind. You see, before he wants you to set up the outpost, we want to make sure he has our minds. Before we set up the the evangelistic training schools, we want to make sure that he has our minds. Before we go ahead and set up churches and set up all sorts of evangelistic efforts, etc., we want to make sure that he has our minds. Because the danger is we do not want to duplicate ourselves. We want to see Jesus duplicated in people. The world does not need another Dwayne Lemon. I told you that. And the world does not need another one of you. We are enough. We are enough. But the world I read in that book, Ministry of Healing, remember I told you about my textbook. What I read in my textbook, Ministry of Healing, when you go to Ministry of Healing, page 143, it tells me what the world needs. It said the world needs now, based on the time of the book, it says what the world needs now is what it needed 1,900 years ago a revelation of Christ. That's what Ministry Healing 143 says. So it's imperative that when people see me and when they see you, that they see Christ in us, the hope of glory. How does it happen? God says, give me your heart. Give me permission. Give me permission. I want to take away that stony heart and I want to replace it with a heart of flesh. Now, understanding that, I want to flesh that out a little bit. How does God get to a place that he takes our minds and now establishes his character. Because that's what's happening. As a man thinks in his mind, so he shall be in his person, in his character. Well, what's the real process of that? Notice. If the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong. And the thoughts and feelings combine make up the moral character. So notice that. Thoughts and feelings combined is what makes up moral character. Mind, Character, and Personality, book two, page 593. So notice this. God wants to reestablish his character in us. When man was made in the beginning of time, man was made in God's image and likeness. The great goal and purpose of the gospel is to recreate God's image and likeness in man. That's the great goal. And Jesus will not come back until he gets what he wants. And he wants to see himself in you. He wants to see himself in me. But what that means is that self got to die. We got to get to a place that it's not my decisions anymore. It's not my goals. It's not my plans. It's not my ideologies. It's not my objectives. It's none of me, all of Christ. This is what Jesus wants. He's not going to be satisfied until he gets what he wants. We can work. We can establish. We can build. We can erect. We travel the world, starting churches. We do all sorts of stuff. But my brothers and sisters, the question is, what truly are we reproducing? Are we creating places, lighthouses that fully reflect the character of Christ? Because that's what God wants. We are told Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his people. When the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. He's waiting to see his character in you and in me. Now notice, what are the two things combined that makes up the character? It's thoughts and feelings. That's what makes up the character. But wait a minute. How is that possible? There has to be more to this picture. Thoughts and feelings make up character. Is it just like that? Not really. So let's go ahead and let's flesh it out even more. Again, Proverbs 23, 7. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, in his mind, so is he. So it kind of goes just from thoughts to character production. Well, there has to be more of a process. So we just got a deeper view. In the magnification, we just saw, well, actually, it's thoughts and feelings that make up the character. But it's still not that simple. In fact, It's not just thoughts and feelings that make up the character, because the truth is actions repeated form habits, habits form character, and by the character, our destiny for time and for eternity is decided. So now what we have is a larger process. First, there are thoughts. Then there are feelings. Then there are actions. Then those actions are repeated. As those actions are repeated, then the character is formed. Notice that process. First comes thoughts, then comes feelings, then comes actions, then comes a repetition of actions, then comes the formation of character. So you know what God is really saying? When the Bible says in Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We know the end result of that goal is that he wants us to be like him. But what God says is I want your thoughts to become my thoughts. I want your feelings to become my feelings. God says I want your actions to become my actions. And then I want you to repeat those actions. And as you do that, God says I will form my character in you. This is a more step by step process. Watch it again. I decided to put it on the screen just to help. So notice again, to have God's character is to have his thoughts. God says, I want you to start thinking like me. The Bible is a revelation of the mind of God. It's the thoughts of God. Once we have thoughts, it's always going to produce feelings. It's impossible not to. So God doesn't have a problem with feelings as long as they're in the right channel. So first, he wants us to have his thoughts. Then we have his feelings. Then we have his actions. Then his actions are to be repeated. As his actions are repeated, he forms his character in us. Hence, we are now like him. This is what God wants to do with you. This is what God wants to do with me. This is why we got to always understand, you know, even when we talk about sin, we can be selfish. You know that? Whenever we think about sin, what do we think about? Woe is me. Oh, look at what sin has done to me. Look at what sin has done to our family. Look at what sin has done to our world. But how many of us take time to think, what did sin do to God's heart? You think God walked away from the garden fine while everybody else was hurting? I used to work with people who were mentally uh, disabled and challenged and, you know, it was a very interesting experience. Learned a lot. And, you know, you're dealing with adults, but sometimes they behave like children because of various disabilities. And I remember there was one gentleman that uh, I would see every day and, you know, he could get mad pretty quick. And so one day he came in, he was hungry. And he came in, he was hungry, he's like, I want to eat. And I said, well, I said, listen, it's not time to eat yet. Oh, come on, Dwayne, can I eat? Can I eat? I want to eat right now. I said, we can, but it's not time yet. We will eat in a little bit. And he said, you know what? Then I won't eat. He says, I'm not going to eat. Forget it. Forget it. Now, I'm not going to eat, and you can't make me eat. In other words, something in his mind made him think, because you refused to give me what I want, I'm going to just not eat anymore. But he said it like it was punishing me, like he was giving me a consequence. (laughs) Oh, you you don't want to let me eat? All right, guess what? I'm not going to eat now. And in his mind, he's thinking, I'm I'm punishing you. I'm not going to eat. And so I remember I had to tell him, I said, well, I said, listen, I just need to let you know when it's lunchtime, I'm going to eat. If you don't want to eat, you'll be hurting yourself. But I am going to continue eating, so I'm going to be fine. And he was just like, oh, well, okay, okay. well, then I'll eat. I'll wait till lunchtime to eat. I said, I I think that's a good idea. (laughs) So watch this. This is my point. I reflected back on that conversation that I had with him because I remember it so vividly. And when I reflected back on that conversation, here it is that I'm telling him, you know, you do whatever you do. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to eat. Well, do you know that there are some of us that believes that God's like that? You're going to commit sin. Fine. You're punishing yourself. But God is like, I'm fine. Look at Isaiah 63. In Isaiah, the 63rd chapter. I wonder if God's fine whenever we are afflicted with sin. The Bible says in Isaiah, the 63rd chapter, I wonder if God's just okay. I wonder if he's not touched. I wonder if he could care less because when we choose to sin, we're just hurting ourselves. The Bible says in Isaiah 63, I'm so thankful God is not like me. The Bible says in Isaiah 63, right there in verses 8 and 9, it says, for he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior. Look at this. Verse nine. In all their affliction. Who was afflicted? It says he was afflicted. In their affliction, God's people, God himself was afflicted. Do you know that every time we sin, it doesn't just hurt us, it hurts him. Every time we're afflicted, he's afflicted. He has so associated his heart with humanity that when we hurt, he hurts. God is not like men. We can be selfish even when we address the issue of sin because all we think about is ourselves. We don't consider how does it affect you, Lord? How did what I did affect you? And God wants to change all of that. And that's why he says, I want to give you new thoughts. I want you to start having my thoughts. I want you to start having my feelings. And then those thoughts and feelings are going to produce actions and it'll be my actions. And then if you keep repeating those actions day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, if you are consistent in repeating those actions, it's going to form your character. Thoughts, feelings, actions, and then actions repeated, this is what forms character. Not by might, nor by power, but by God's Holy Spirit this gives a little bit more depth to the idea of having the mind of Christ. It's having his thoughts. It's having his feelings. It's having all these wonderful dynamics of what we're studying. Now, with that, that means that it's not enough to have this. Go to Romans 12. In Romans 12, God makes it clear of something that he gives to us, but then there's something more that he wants. Romans, the 12th chapter. In Romans chapter 12, let's look at verses 1 to 3. Again, dealing with the mind. The Bible says in Romans 12, we're looking at verses 1 to 3. When you get there, just let me know by saying amen. All right? In Romans 12, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what that is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself. What more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath done what dealt to every man the measure of faith. God has dealt to every one of us the measure of faith. This is why if you carefully study the Bible, you don't hear a whole lot about having faith in comparison to hearing about growing faith. You hear a lot more in the Bible about growing faith than it is having faith. Having faith is important, and God has made that somewhat easy for us because the Bible just said he dealt to every man the measure of faith. He's dealt that out. We have the capacity to trust. But what God wants now is he wants us to learn how to grow or cultivate faith. This is exceedingly and abundantly important. Why? Because notice this. Go to the book of Jude verses 20 and 21. Watch what Jude the Apostle says to you and to me. Notice this. Jude verses 20 and 21. Jude verse 20 and 21. There's no chapters, just Jude. So it's just Jude verses 20 and 21. Now, please keep in mind that what we're about to read right here, this is after Jude has given warnings about wolves in sheep's clothing, apostates, individuals who are going to try to steal away the seeds of true doctrine, true faith. They're going to try to steal that away. So Jude exposes some things about them and points them out. But now he's at the stage here in verse 20 where he gives the admonishment. After the warning, the admonishment. What is the admonishment? It says in Jude verse 20, it says, But ye beloved. In other words, these people over here, they're sensual, they're devilish, they're this, they're that. You know, he was going on in the previous verses. But now in verse 20 he says, but, meaning, whatever they're doing, this should have nothing to do with you. It says, but you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Notice that he used the word building up your most holy faith. Question, is that a cultivation? That's cultivating, isn't it? You see, it is a biblical instruction that we are not to just simply have faith. But what's far more weightier is whatever little faith that God has dealt to you and dealt to me, we are to receive it, but more importantly, we are to cultivate it. My brothers and sisters, again, God makes this simple for us. You know, some of us, we gloat over the fact that we went in our backyard one day, maybe got some land. And we started tilling soil. We start tilling soil and we start breaking that soil up or whatever. And we till the soil and we finally are like, all right, I got a garden. Hooray, I am now a farmer. And now we're going to go ahead and we get that garden going. And now we eventually drop the seeds in. broke up the soil first. We drop the seeds in, et cetera. Well, that's fine and dandy that you planted the seed. But my brothers and sisters, are you going to get a harvest if you don't continue to cultivate that thing? you got to cultivate it. It's great that you have a garden. But you got to cultivate that soil to get the appropriate fruit you want from the garden. You understand that? That's why God would use agriculture. And we all would understand this better if we were, again, in the country and having our gardens and all. If we were there, we would understand all these principles because we would live it. I'm over at Meat Ministry. Love that ministry. When I was at Meat Ministry, you know, I'm talking to one of my buddies there. His name is Brad, Brad Neely. And Brother Brad is there. And I said, Brad, I said, how much food do you and your family eat from your garden? What's the percentage? He said, 75%. Percent. I said, 75% percent of what you eat grows from your soil. He said, yep. I don't know about you, but that is phenomenal. That's phenomenal for so many reasons. You know, when I was here years ago, just to give you one point of, of, of how phenomenal it is. If there's one thing that's happening even in Adventism, is a lot of God's people are getting sick. Unfortunately, we're suffering with very bad diseases. Uh, cancers and, you know, all sorts of things nowadays. And part of the reason for that is because of poor nutrition. You know, we're just not giving our body the resources that it needs to stay strong. Your body is made to live and to heal and to survive, very much so. If you cut yourself, your body goes into immediate action for healing. God testifies of his healing virtue just by the fact that if you cut your hand, immediately fibrins and blood platelets, everything comes together to heal, okay? Our bodies are made to heal. But if we don't give our bodies what it needs, the healing process becomes debilitated. One of the key things our body needs is nutrients. So nutrients is very important. It's not about just eating vegetables. It's about eating vegetables with nutrients in it. You can kill the nutrients in vegetables. You can kill the nutrients in tofu. You can kill the nutrients in all sorts of plant-based food. It's not about it just being plant-based. You have to maintain its nutrients. Do you understand that? Simple health lesson. Now, When I was here years ago, I said something. I said, I love persimmons. I said, that's one of my favorite fruits. And I know persimmons grow in abundance out here in California. So what a precious soul did is when I was getting ready to leave to go back home, somebody came with a box of persimmons for me. Wasn't that nice? And at that time, nobody else in my household liked persimmons. So I was like, more for me. I mean, you know, I was really happy about that. I said, man, I got a whole box of persimmons just for me. Well, here it is that we got home. When I got home, my persimmon tree was yielding persimmons. So I took the California persimmon and I compared it to my Georgia persimmon. Maybe this afternoon I'll show you a picture. I actually have a picture of it. You ever heard of that statement, the darker the berry, the sweeter the juice? You ever heard that before? Darker the berry, Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that because, you know, a, a lot of times the darker is, is more nutrient dense. So I had a refractometer, just a little instrument that measures sugar content and nutrient levels in the, in the food. And I remember that I took the California persimmon and I took mine. So I had my oldest son, Jared, I said, do me a favor, go grab one of our persimmons from our backyard. So he grabbed one of the persimmons. And when he did that, He began to go ahead and and cut just a little bit of it and let the juice get on the refractometer. So I looked at the California one. When I looked at it, it came up to a 20, which means it was good. It was a good persimmon. had some good nutrients in it. But then I said, now get our persimmon. My persimmon was darker. We cut it. We put it on the refractometer. When it came back, my son said, um... I don't know how to read this. And I was like, you don't know how to read it? I said, let me get it. So I looked at it. The top number is 30. The blue line went above the top number, which means our persimmons had so much nutrition that it broke the chart. That came from cultivating the soil. That came because we did not do what maybe the typical farmers were doing to just hurry up and get mass production. We took time and let that soil get broken down and nicely cultivated. And it produced food that was loaded with life. So when we ate it, oh man, it just melted in your mouth. God says, you need to understand that that's what I want, Duane, with you in your walk with me. You see, every time I went to my persimmon tree, it was a reminder You cultivated. You went deeper. You dug three feet deep, three feet wide. You put subsoil and topsoil and subsoil and topsoil. You put the layer of rocks like the angels showed Ellen White. You put the tubes in that allowed the aeration to get in each side. You put in all of the different calcium and phosphate. You put all the nutrients in and you took it. Did it take a lot of work, Dwayne? Yes, but did it yield a wonderful harvest? And the answer was Yes. God says that was supposed to be the day-to-day lesson book for my people. It wasn't about just food. It was about lessons on faith. God wants us to cultivate faith. It is not enough just to have it, but it must be cultivated. And how much the more When Jesus made a startling statement, go to Luke 18. Let me show you the startling statement in the startling statement that Jesus made. I want you to listen to this. You know, Jesus has made a lot of startling statements, and this is one of them. Jesus was teaching a lesson. You're going to Luke 18. And when Jesus was teaching a lesson, he was talking about end time events. And at one point in Luke 18 and verse one, he says men ought always to pray and not to faint. Okay, praise the Lord. Men ought always to pray. We should be praying. We should be praying often. We should be praying a lot and we shouldn't stop. And then he goes into this story, the parable. Then he starts talking about how there was this unjust king and there was this woman. And the woman keeps begging and bothering the king and so on. And he says the unjust king got to a point where he said, look, I'm going to give this woman what she wants so she can just stop bothering me. She was saying, you know, avenge me of my enemies and all these things. And the king got to a place the king said, look, give this woman what she wants because take vengeance for her because if if she doesn't, she's going to wear out my ears. Jesus says, you see what the unjust king does? How much more your heavenly father. Jesus says when people do us wrong, God says you don't need to be, you don't need to take vengeance. God says vengeance is mine. God says I will take care of all of those who have done my people unjustly. So Jesus was teaching, have faith. Trust God. But in Luke 18, 8, notice what he says as he was closing out on this parable. In Luke 18, right there, in verse 8, look at what the Bible says next. He says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. But he says, nevertheless. In other words, I'm telling you, God's going to do what he said he's going to do. But... Nevertheless, he said, when the Son of Man comes, what did he wonder if he's even going to find? He says, well, I even find people that trust me. Jesus has already made it known. When he comes back, there will be a very small group of people that trust him. And without trust, it is impossible to please God. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting God. And without trust, all our singing, all our preaching, all our teaching, all our conferences, all our evangelistic efforts, all our so-called sacrifices, all our donations, it will amount to nothing. It will amount to nothing. Because we gave it to a God we didn't even trust. And that's when Paul says... Though I preach to others, I myself will be a castaway. Yes, our money will do great work, but we might miss out on the overall benefit of that work. And God says, I don't want that for my people. God says, listen, I appreciate your money. I appreciate everything, but I really want your heart. I want you to know that I'm trustworthy. This is the greatest frustration with God and his people is he's trying so hard to convince us I am worthy of your trust. I understand your husband failed you. I understand your wife failed you. I understand your parents failed you. I understand your siblings failed you. And I definitely understand that the church folk failed you. God says I'm not like any of them. And what we have done is we have brought God down on a human level. The same way everybody at one point or another put a knife in our back, we feel like God's getting ready to do the same thing. This is how a lot of people treat God. We feel like, now, you're being nice to me right now, but you're getting ready to put your knife in my back. Just like he did, she did, they did. And God is trying so hard to show I am not a man that I would lie. God is seeking to bring that across to us. And I'm telling you the truth, family, it's a hard lesson. And that's why... The most important thing we need to be studying right now is the cultivation of faith. Now, somebody says, oh, that's Brother Lemon's deduction. No, we need to be studying the third angel. No, we need to be studying end times. We need to be studying the apostasies in the church. We need to be studying all these things. Brother Lemon, you're saying that, but does inspiration say that? Yes, notice. Inspiration makes this crystal clear. The knowledge of what the scripture means when urging upon us the what? Necessity of doing what? Cultivating faith is more essential than any other knowledge that can be acquired. I've learned a long time ago, ministers should never speak what heaven has not endorsed. The most essential knowledge that we need to understand is cultivating faith. Now, I would like to submit unto you, it is the cultivation of the faith of Jesus. And the reason why is this. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. Notice what the Bible says. I believe that we need to understand this because somebody could read this and misunderstand it. Not all faith is acceptable to God. Did you know that? Let me prove it. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. The Bible says, right there in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3. Notice what the text says. Very clear. Don't have to be confused on it. First Corinthians 13. The Bible says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Verse two. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have how much faith, all faith. So that I can remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. We don't understand the depth of these words. That's why we're told in inspiration we should read this chapter every day. Because these words are deep. Are you telling me that somebody could die in the name of Jesus? and not get the reward? God says, yes. There are people dying in the name of their gods right now. How many people do you you heard about that actually will strap a bomb to themselves and go ahead and cry out their God's name before they blow themselves and innocent victims up as well? People do all sorts of strange things in the name of their God. How many fanatical Christian groups were there that was going around telling people to either drink poison Or to believe strange doctrines, burn yourself up, light yourself up on fire. That thing with Waco, Texas, so many years ago, literally, my brother, Brad Neely, he was there. He wasn't there with the group in Waco, but he went to the church that David Koresh had an influence. And the people were encouraging him to go to Waco, Texas with them he gave a testimony with the health guests at the sanitarium this past week. He gave a testimony how God preserved him. Because he almost went. There's all sorts of fanatical movements filled with faith. Listen to what I'm telling you. There's all sorts of fanatical movements that are filled with faith. They have no doubt that what they're doing is right. They have no doubt that God is with them. They have no doubt that I know God is going to do all of the things that we say. You know, they missed the key ingredient of true faith. Faith is trusting God. But remember what we learned? To trust God means to trust his what? His word. That is where that fanatical movement failed. That, do you see how you can die filled with faith And ultimately end up separated from God forever. Because we did not have his love. And it was not founded upon the word. And so God is not just simply saying, I want my people to have a whole bunch of faith. Simply. But that faith should be based on his word. And it should be grounded in Galatians 5. Go to Galatians 5. What should be the foundation of our faith? Galatians 5. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, what should be the foundation of the faith that we cultivate and that we exercise? The Bible says it very clearly. Galatians, chapter five. Galatians, chapter five. The Bible says in Galatians, the fifth chapter. When you get there, just say amen. Amen. The Bible says in Galatians five, starting right there at verse six, it says, for in Jesus Christ. Neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. But what is it that avails with God? It says, but faith which works by love. That's in harmony with First Corinthians 13. Whatever little or great faith you and I exercise, if it's not based on our love for God and love for man, it will profit us nothing. We can have tremendous faith in the name of love for self. That kind of faith will never recommend us to God. And so, when inspiration says the knowledge of what the scripture means when urging upon us the necessity of cultivating faith is more essential than any. Other knowledge that can be acquired. I marvel at how many of us, we study the law of God. We make sure we know it backwards and forwards. We study health reform. We know it backwards and forwards. We study the first, second, and third angels' message in the context of historical events and, and certain applications in the future, et cetera, and we do that with great force. We study a whole lot, but it's very rare that God's people study how to cultivate faith. That is so mind blowing to me. I mean, I'm serious. And when I say mind-blowing, I'm talking about myself. I'm like, Dwayne, how did you miss that? How is it that I, I, mean, I'm studying to make sure I understand the outpost, and I understand this, and I understand medical missionary work, and I understand this, and I understand doctrine, I understand present truth, and understand so many things, and I don't know how to truly cultivate faith. That's not good. That's not good, family. We're talking about a deeper experience we need. I don't know about you. This is far from surface. This is not surface teaching. This is very deep teaching. God is like, I want you to have my thoughts. I want you to have my feelings. I want you to have my actions. And I want you to repeat those actions because that's how I'm going to form my character in you. And then I can trust you in my house because now you're like me. But it's not going to happen if we don't know how to cultivate faith because I can guarantee you Jesus knew how to cultivate it. Notice the close of the quotation. It all comes from Review and Herald, October 18, 1898, paragraph 7. It says, we suffer much trouble and grief because of our unbelief and our ignorance of how to exercise faith. We suffer much trouble because of our ignorance of how to exercise faith. We suffer so much suffering. And you know how we get. If we suffer too much, we stop looking at man and we actually start looking at God. But we don't look to God in faith. We look to him in accusation. What are you doing? Why are you letting this happen to me? Why are you letting this happen to my family? You against me? You want to hurt me? You read Steps to Christ, page 116, paragraph two. It says Satan exalts. When he can convince us that God means us harm by his providences. He loves it. When we finally get so fed up that we go to him and say, what are you doing? Why are you letting this happen? Satan says, yes. Got him where I want him. We think God wants to hurt us. We think God wants to punish us. I know this too well. And so God says, so much trouble we would be spared from if we learned how to cultivate faith. And so it says we suffer much trouble and grief because of our unbelief and our ignorance of how to exercise faith. It says we must break through the clouds of unbelief. We cannot have a healthy Christian experience. We cannot obey the gospel unto salvation until the science of faith is better understood and until more faith is exercised. Listen to this. Present truthers, there can be no perfection of of Christian character without that faith that works by love and purifies the soul. We can teach victory over sin all we want. We can teach you better have victory over sin by the Sunday law all we want. If we don't teach these people and if we don't understand ourselves, this is how you exercise faith. We're just talking. We're just making noise and we're just having a whole lot of mental and emotional stimulation. And then people leave churches, they leave conferences, and they leave camp meetings unconverted. Stimulated, but unconverted. They're not changed. God says this vicious cycle has to stop. Because you know what's happening? I don't know what it is, family. I I, I told my wife this. I said, I don't understand. I don't know if it's just me? But it seems like a whole lot of SDAs, especially preachers and health reformers and stuff like that, are dropping dead. I'm constantly getting calls, this evangelist or this person, this person's now diagnosed with cancer. And I'm like, hold up. I understand if they was a disobedient group of saints and, and they are you know eating, drinking, and doing a whole bunch of stuff and violating all God's laws of health, but these are people that at least on the outside looking in Who are very obedient. They are following the truth as it is in Jesus. They are a different class, but it seems like they're suffering. What's going on with that? And what I believe God is doing is he's trying to get us to understand enough is enough. Too many of us, we know too much and we practice too little. And yes, on the outside we look like we're in harmony with following what God says, but it's funny. For some of these people who have passed on, I've talked with their spouses, and you know what their spouses have said? They said, What you saw was not always the full case. Some of them were thoroughly intemperate. Thoroughly. You keep neglecting your rest night after night after night after night, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. Do not be surprised if Alzheimer's, dementia or even Lou Gehrig's disease. Don't be surprised if that stuff starts popping up in us. You got a whole bunch of people who think they're health reformers. And I was at a a medical missionary institute and I was teaching the students how to do health and lifestyle consultations. And when I got up to exercise, I said it with jest. I said, you know, sometimes there are students and workers at sanitariums and they think that because they stroll on the property and walk a lot strolling, they actually think that that's exercise. And I was just like, you know, I said, can you imagine? Because I'm role-playing with the person as if they're a health guest. And I said, can you imagine that there are people at some of these health institutes that do that? And then I looked at the students, and they're all just laughing. Because, I mean, they know that I'm talking about you. Y'all need to stop thinking that you're a little strolling while you're on your cell phone or texting. for. This is not exercise. Okay? It's good. It's movement. You know what I'm saying? You'll get a couple of brownie points for it. But you're not really going to get the kind of health. That we need when Satan is putting a deadly taint in the atmosphere. We read that in Great Controversy 590. Satan is putting a deadly taint in the atmosphere, and thousands are dying because of the pestilence. We have to understand you're gonna to have to step it up. If you're gonna keep your body healthy, if you're really gonna avoid sickness and disease, it's not that God does not have a plan, but you and I gotta kill this lazy approach that we've taken to his plan. I'm serious, family. I'm serious. I am getting very weary of constantly hearing another person has cancer. Another person has some deadly disease. I mean, it's like I'm constantly hearing this. And I'm just like, Lord, we are your people. And God is like, yes, but my people have gotten into the idea, do most of what I say. That's the problem with God's people. We're doing most of what he said. And we actually think we're all right because we're just like, well, I'm not like those heathen eating hamburgers. I'm not like those people eating a whole bunch of pork with greasy cheese and ribs all over it. And I'm not like them. God says, I never asked you to compare yourself to them. I told you to compare yourself to my son. And until your character measures up with my son, you still have a little bit higher to go upon Jacob's ladder. You understand that? And so God wants us to understand that we got to go higher in him. How does this happen? We must Cultivate faith. It's not what you have. It's about are you building what you have. Amen? All right. I think it's time to talk about it. Go to the book of Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, I think we need to understand what faith is. If we're going to cultivate or build up our most holy faith, It would make sense to understand exactly what faith is. If somebody asks you and I, what is faith? Our general answer is, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And we are just as confused when we finish saying that sentence. (laughs) Tell me I'm lying. (laughs) I know for a long time, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not... Listen, a bird can repeat words. But it doesn't mean that bird has understanding. Proverbs 4 and verse 7 says wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom and with all thy getting, get what? Understanding. It's about understanding what you're reading. And so we can all say faith is the substance of things for, the evidence of things not seen. Okay, well, how do you understand that? As my dad would put it, put some skin on that. Make it flesh. Make it alive. What do you mean by that? You understand that? So let's talk about it. What is faith? Matthew 8. So in Matthew 8, I believe That Jesus is about to put us in class. This room is no longer a church, it's a classroom. Jesus is our teacher through the agency of his Holy Spirit, and I am simply a mouthpiece. Jesus is going to teach us what faith is, and it starts in Matthew 8. In Matthew chapter 8, I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider verse 5, and if you're there, say amen. Right here, we're just going to read 5 to 10, and then we're going to switch over to Luke 7, because Luke 7 is going to magnify some key points. All right. The Bible says in verse five, and when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only. What did he tell Jesus to do? Speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. Verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so what? Great faith. No, not in Israel. Jesus just told us what faith is. Okay? He just told us that himself. Now, let's do a little bit of magnification on this. Let's go to Luke 7. Luke 7. Let's do some magnification on this because Matthew's account is good. I think Luke's is better. Luke 7. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 9. Okay? Luke 7, we're now going to look at verses 1 to 9. Some nice key points here. Luke 7, verses 1 to 9. All right. So the Bible says in Luke 7, starting at verse 1. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was what? That he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Is that good or is that bad? That is terrible. Because they are like Jesus. This man is worthy to receive healing on behalf of his servant because he did something for our nation. Meaning, if he didn't do anything for their nation, he would have been unworthy. Is that the thoughts of God? No, so it shouldn't be our thoughts either. You understand that? We should not heal people based on what they do for us. We should heal people because they need healing. You understand that? So this is messed up. So these guys are coming to Jesus. Hey, hey, listen, stop what you're doing. You need to help this guy. Why? Because he did something great for us. But let's continue with the story. So now, verse six, then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. And then he obviously met with Jesus because now it says for I. So first. He sends the Jews, go ask Jesus, come to my house, heal my servant. Then as he thinks about it, he says, you know what, let me send my servants. Then as he thinks more about it, now he says, you know what, I'm going to go myself. This is what's happening sandwiched in these verses. So now he says, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. He corrected the Jews. The Jews said he is worthy. This man says, I'm not. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve anything. I'm a sinner and I need help. So this brother recognizes his true state before God. He says, I am not worthy. Then he goes on and says, for I am not worthy. But then he says in verse seven, wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word. And my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having unto me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things. He marveled at him and turned him about and said. Jesus displayed that brother. Jesus said, come here. Brought him before all the Jews. And he says, I have not seen so great faith. No, not even in Israel. Now, let's pull some lessons out of this. Number one. He recognized his unworthiness. He could not command or demand God to do anything because he knew I am not worthy. There's only one thing sinners are worthy of, of which he knew I was. And he said sinners are worthy of death. He knows that. Sinners are worthy of death. So I'm not worthy. So I'm not coming to you based on my merit. That's number one. He did not come to Jesus based on any merit of his own, any works that he has done, any blessings that he has been. He didn't bring any accolades to Jesus saying, look at what I did, look at what I did. He came totally to Christ and said, look, I am not worthy to have you even come to my roof. But if you are willing to do what I have asked you to do, just go ahead and speak a word. And I fully trust and depend upon your word that what you said is going to be done. That's it. That's all he needed. Then he added something. He says, listen, he's talking to Jesus. Listen, I know. Because I'm a man that has soldiers under me. That means he knew that Jesus had soldiers. I wonder how he knew that. You see, when Jesus was fasting 40 days and 40 nights, according to Matthew four eleven. When Jesus was fasting 40 days and 40 nights, who came to his rescue to relieve him from his suffering? Angels. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating to the point that blood vessels are popping and his sweat is now mixed with blood. According to Luke 22, 43, who is it that came to Jesus and strengthened him? Angels. This brother understood. You don't need to come to my house. Just tell one of your soldiers what to do, and I know they'll do it. Because I'm a man that has soldiers under me. And I know that when I tell my soldiers, go, they go. When I tell my soldiers, come, they come. All you got to do is speak a word and tell your soldiers, go heal my servant. And I know my servant will be healed. Jesus marveled at this. You see, my friends, we need to understand something. Jesus has all sorts of ministering angels. And we are told in Desire of Ages right there, page 143, The angels of God are ever passing from earth to heaven and from heaven to earth. The miracles of Christ for the afflicted and suffering were wrought by the power of God through the ministration of the angels. It says, and it is through Christ by the ministration of his heavenly messengers that every blessing comes from God to us. He knew. You got soldiers the same way I have soldiers. And I know my soldiers do what I tell them to do. I know your soldiers will do what you tell them to do. Just speak a word and tell your soldiers, go heal my servant. And I know my servant will be healed. My brothers and sisters, this is exercising faith. So when I think about it, faith is fully trusting God's word to come to pass because he said it and depending only on the word to do what God said it will do. This is faith. That's a lot more than just merely repeating faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, this is magnifying that point from Hebrews 11.1. I'm just trying to put it in more what I'll call layman's terms, Simple language that hopefully we can understand. All right? What is faith? Faith is how much are we trusting God? Fully. It is fully trusting God's word to come to pass. Why? Because he said it. And depending only on that word to do what God said it will do. This is faith. Therefore, when we think about cultivating faith. What God says is I want you to cultivate, I want you to grow in learning how to fully trust what I said I will do and depend only on my word for what I said to come to pass without any additional evidence. God says this is literally exercising faith. If you're a hypochondriac and you're scared about everybody being sick, God's word says, if you keep my commandments, if you do all that I tell you to do, I will put none of the diseases upon you, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord thy God that healeth thee. That means I don't need to be a hypochondriac because God's word promised that if I cooperate with him, he will keep away the diseases. You understand that? The only reason a lot of us are getting sick in spite of is because a lot of us don't trust those words. And our trust is demonstrated in action because his thoughts, his feelings should produce actions. By our disobedience, we testify we don't trust God. You understand that? Every time we cheat and eat a bunch of stuff he told us not to eat. Every time we're intemperate and doing things that we know we shouldn't be doing. Every time we're neglectful and do not do things we should be doing. God is saying, you still don't trust me. If you trusted my words, you would do what I said. And this is the only faith that counts. God says to some of us, I have called you from your common vocation and your common walk of life, and I've called you into my service, that I've called you to serve me full-time. Lord, what's going to be my income? Trust me. Sorry, I can't trust that. I have a family to feed. Abraham had a family to feed. I told him to go to a place that he didn't even know where he was going, and he didn't go alone. He brought a whole entourage with him. He trusted me. Why can't you trust me? We have to understand that when God makes a promise, we can take it to the bank. And my brothers and sisters, listen, I'm in school with you on this. I promise you we are learning this together. This is what is to be exercised. And you know what the great problem is? The reason why many of us cannot exercise this kind of faith is because many of us are not spending enough time in the word. You see, to have this kind of faith requires deep Bible study. You got to get into the word like you've never gotten into it before. You must know the thoughts of God. You have to know his thoughts now. And if you don't have his thoughts, you can't claim his promises. And what we'll do is we'll end up falling into presumption. Anytime we're like, I know God is with me. Where's the word? I don't know. That's presumption. Straight up, that's presumption. Sorry. I claim health. Well, God's word says you got to meet the conditions. I don't need that. I just trust God. That is presumption. You're going to get sick. and If you're not careful, you'll die. And if you're not careful, you'll be lost and die. And That's terrible. Please don't let that happen. And so God is trying to get across to your mind. It's trying to get across to my mind that he's saying, I need you to learn how to trust my word. If I said it, that's it. And I need you to depend only on what I said. That it shall come to pass without looking for a single outside source. Brothers and sisters, this is not easy because it's going to pull you and it's going to pull me out of my laziness. I'm going to have to start really now knowing the promises. i got to really start meditating upon the word. I have hid thy word in thy heart that I might not sin against thee. Literally, we're going to have to start doing this. We're going to have to go a lot deeper now. And when you're getting sick, And if you think you're dying, God has a word about healing, too. There are times that God can speak to you through his word and make it known to you. This one's not unto death. You know, I feel very privileged to to stand here before you to share this. I mean, I am so unworthy, man. I mean, I'm getting it. It's almost like I could see his face, and he's just like, keep talking. He showed me so clear your heart condition is not unto death. I mean, God gave so many evidences. From the day I walked into that cardiologist's office, and he was like, I'm thinking, I'm fine. I know I'm fine. I'm good. I feel great. I was 100% asymptomatic. So I'm like, I'm good. And that guy goes in there, and he's like, Mr. Lemon, you know, your heart is severely regurgitating. What did he say? He said, my left atrium is 7.8 centimeters big. He said, how are you feeling? He squeezing my ankles, looking for edema and all this stuff. I'm like, I feel fine. So I'm exercising every day, brisk walking in less than 28 minutes. That means that I'm brisk walking four miles per hour. That is phenomenal. And then on top of that, I mean, asymptomatic. He told me that I called my buddy. I said, Nate. Listen, man, I need to know. I called Norman McNulty. I called Nate. I called uh, Edwin Neblett. I mean, I'm calling all these physicians and practitioners that I know, Phil Mills. I'm calling everybody. Listen, any of you guys know a heart surgeon? My friend Nate calls me back. Hey, Dwayne, listen, man. uh, Why are you asking me about heart surgery? I said, well, apparently I found out I need it. And he's like, wow. He said, listen, um, this may be Providence. He says my best friend happens to be one of the top mitral valve surgeons in all of California. Let me get his number. I'll give it to you. So then I get in touch with Dr. Wong. Talk with him about it. He's like, yeah, you know what? Sure. Send me your CD. Let me take a look at your echo. I'll take on the case. And I I just wish I could tell you how much. When when I got here to Loma Linda, the doctor who was at Loma Linda, he did the transesophageal echocardiogram, the TEE, put that thing down my throat. Camera's right there on my heart. He told my wife, he said, your husband's heart is so severely regurgitating that he can't even walk up a flight of stairs without being winded. There's an app called Swerk It. And he doesn't know that I'm there like burpees. I mean, I'm working out. <laughs> 30 minutes straight, nonstop. My heart's like boom, boom, boom. I mean, my heart's going, but I'm fine. And he's telling my wife he can't even go up a flight of stairs. It was like God... It was just like nobody's taking my son until it is his time. I will not let circumstances take my son until it is his time. You saw the GoFundMe, this had to be cash. Because if had I done it up north, you're going to have to get a mechanical valve. We're going to put you on Coumadin for the rest of your life, and da da da. And this could happen, that could happen. So Dr. Wong said, "There's only a few surgeons that know how to repair diseased valves." I said, "Are you one of them?" He said, "Yes." <laughs> I said, "Well, that's why God led me to you." God gave so much providence, and God speaks through providence. And he gave so much word. And I was a doubting Thomas all the way through. I mean, it was only when I was in the surgical room. They laid me on the gurney. And I'm like, I have never been admitted in a hospital. I have never been sick. And now I'm about to have my chest sawed open. And I remember I'm in there and I'm watching them. They all just beep, beep, you hear everything beeping. Da, 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 and I'm just there. And it was right there that I was like, this is it. And they're getting ready. Okay, Mr. Lemon, we're going to give you the anesthesia. We're going to go in. I said, wait. I said, I need to pray. Can we pray? And they said, yeah, yeah, sure. And my anesthesiologist was a Muslim. Some of the ladies, I think they were like uh, Buddhists or something like that. And then a couple people with 70 Adventists or other Christian groups. I mean, it was just a whole big religious Mecca in the room. And I remember I'm there and I'm just like, all right, Father. This is it. <laughs> And I kept going through the sufferings of Jesus in volume 2, page 200 to 215. I kept looking at my Savior. I had to do that. That's the only thing that kept me sane is that he suffered more, and he did it for me. And so I remember that at a certain point in that surgical room, I was there laying down, and I was just like, all right, Lord. I said, this is it. I don't know how this is going to come out. My faith was so weak. I was just like, with all the harbingers. I mean, God was showing so clear. This one is not unto death. And here it is that I was there, and I just said, Lord, okay. I said, well, if I'm going to die, I said, all I ask is that you please cleanse me from all of my sins, forgive me where I've erred. And I just laid myself bare before him, and then I said, but if this is not unto death, I said, anoint the hands of the doctors, guide everyone in this room, post angels around here, and double portion, may Jesus be the one guiding the surgeon's hand. And then I said these closing words, It was right from volume two in the sufferings of Christ. I said, Father, I now fall into your arms. That's what it says about Jesus. When Jesus couldn't see beyond the grave, all he could do was remember what God did for him. He could remember his walk with God. And then it says, Jesus just fell into the father's arms. And I said, Father, I fall into your arms, whatever you want. He went and he put that thing inside my arm. And when he put it inside, I was like, are you done? He was like, yep. And I was like, wow. And I turned my head to the left, and everything just went black. (laughs) I mean, that stuff is powerful. And when it was all said and done, the next thing I remember, I mean, it's like like death. You know, what we read about. You know, I can't say I've been there, but you get my point. It's like, all I know is everything went black. And then I just heard, he's going to be all right. He's going to be okay. And I was like, you know, in my mind, I was like, I know that voice. And I was like, that's Thomas Jackson. You know, I call him Dad. He's like a father to me. And he came for the surgery. And Brother Jackson was there for meat ministry. And and I heard it. I was like, that's Dad. And then I heard this music in my left ear. I mean, the sweetest music I ever heard. It was the voice of my wife. Oh, sweet music. And she said, I love you. I love you. And then she said, he repaired both valves. And I was just like, and you know, I got this big tube in my mouth, so I'm kind of like, uh, you know, half smile. And I'm just like, uh. And in my mind, I was just like, he did it. Because that's what we believe. We believe that God brought us here for a repair, not for a replacement. And he repaired the valve. And it's like, I remember so clearly how much we can quote the Bible, but not believe it. We can teach God, but not trust God. And the thing just hit me so hard. Like, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. A sinner. Because I think it's terrible to preach a God that we don't trust. And so it is that as I go through this, my family, I'm telling you the truth. This thing hit me so hard. Faith is fully trusting God's word to come to pass. Because he said it. And depending only on the word to do what God said, it will do. This is faith. And this is what God is trying to teach you and trying to teach me. Is trust me. How do I trust you, Lord? Trust my words. But you can't trust what you don't study. You can't claim what you don't know. And so God is teaching us go deeper. I want to see more effort because this is cultivating faith. You're digging more into his words. You're locking them into memories hall or you might have to do something else. Can I show you something that I did real quick? Y'all want to leave? You all right? None of you look like you want to leave. You know why? Because you're being spiritually fed by God's spirit. And I want you to be fed. Listen, listen, there's something special. Stand by. All right. This has become my companion. I understand that some of us can't memorize. I get that. But you all can write. And So I got myself a little book here. And in this little book, I got the subject fear. And whenever I start to experience fear, if I just suddenly start getting afraid because my heart has been doing weird stuff since this surgery, because it takes about a year for healing. So sometimes I'm either feeling things on my heart or I'm thinking it's my heart, but it's really bone and cartilage and you know, everything's coming back together. I mean, they had to saw through muscle and tissue and the, I mean, all of that. So now all of that has to heal and it doesn't happen quick. So there's times that I'm like, what's that feeling? Oh man, there's something going on? Lord, oh no, please. You know, and I got to go through that. I I went through that. So when those moments of fear come, I had to go back and I began to write in my little book. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. So I would start writing down all these Bible verses that speak directly to my mind. I then would write spirit of prophecy quotes that are in harmony with the subject on fear. Then I would go ahead and have songs that I would start singing because it's hard to worry and sing at the same time. And I would go ahead and I would start singing a song when my mind starts getting discouraged. And as I would sing, I'd sing that thing loud. I'd start singing. i lift my voice up and everything. And as I'm singing, I have found that God inhabits the praises of his people. He comes and he banishes the fear. I have all sorts of subjects in my little book. I have one making mistakes. So if I make a mistake, I don't have to beat myself up. Some of us go through this type of stuff. You make a mistake. You make a determination. I'm going to do this. By God's grace, I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to be a good wife. No more arguments, Lord. And the day you make the promise is the day you're fussing and fighting again. You know what the devil does? The devil says, look at you. You're such a loser. You can't do this. You know, if you study the Bible carefully... God would always rebuke the devil. He did not parlay. He did not have conversations with Satan. I would like to encourage you, stop having conversations with the devil. Don't talk to him. You can't reason with him. You can't be like, leave me alone. How dare you? Don't you know? You can't do that. It just doesn't work. Two times we read the devil comes to Jesus when he's doing his work. Zechariah 3, Jude 9. And when you read both of them, what happens? Jesus wants to go ahead and clean up Joshua. Devil comes in and starts accusing him. Jesus says, "The Lord, rebuke thee. He's a brand plucked out of the fire. Do you know that's the end of the discussion? There's nothing else that he says to him. Literally, Satan just disappears. He's gone. He's out of the picture. Jude, verse 9. Jesus is getting ready to resurrect Moses. And the devil comes to him again. And all it says is, the Lord, rebuke thee. And he just banishes him away. We have to learn how to rebuke the devil's thoughts. True story. I am sharing with you practical ways that God had to teach me how to cultivate faith. When I came out of surgery, oh, man, the devil's just whispering in my ear, you'll never preach again. You're not going to heal. I mean, he was relentless. Relentless. And I remember he got to me one time. I'm sitting in the hotel and I'm sitting there and I'm just thinking about all these thoughts that he's suggesting. You're not going to heal. You'll never be the same. Your heart's going to just go bad. You, you read the statistics that valves can start regurgitating again after surgery. You're going to be one of them. You watch. You're going to end up back under the knife. I mean, he's just putting these thoughts in. And literally, it terrified me so much that I remember I got to a place I said, Lord, please, I need you to come near. True story. When I prayed, and said, Lord, I need you to come near. Please, cast him away. These words came to my mind. Clear. You want to know what I think? Because in other words, I'm thinking all these thoughts were God's thoughts. And I'm telling you, this is a master plan of Satan. He suggests thoughts to make us think that God is speaking when God is not speaking. So, I'm thinking that, Lord, please don't do this to me. Please, give me another chance, etc. Voice comes in. You want to know what I think? And I'm just like, Yes. And this is all that came to my mind. Jeremiah 29 11. That's all that came in my mind. I went to Jeremiah 29 11. These are the thoughts that I have towards you. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. I wept like a child. I mean, I wept like a child. I just said, loving Savior. Loving Savior. God is trying to teach us. You must cultivate what you have. It's not enough that you have it. You got to build it up. You got to strengthen it. And my mind has never been so much in God's words. Right now, I am experiencing thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 20. When you get a chance, you read that. And in Thoughts of the Mount of Blessings, page 20, it says that um, familiar passages of Scripture will come to our mind with brand new meaning. Familiar passages of Scripture will come to our minds with brand new meaning. It's like when I read the Bible now, it's like it's, it's different. It's just different. I look at everything differently. But it's beautiful. And so, my encouragement to you, I I had more I want to teach you. I was going to show you something special about Abraham's faith. Maybe we'll try it this afternoon because you need to know this lesson too. It's another lesson. We'll do it in the afternoon. But my brothers and sisters, I I just want to encourage you. We got to get to this place that we can really trust him. Not just when things go good now. I have to get to a place. God forbid. What if I'm like some people out there whom God loves, too? And their heart valves do go bad. And Regurgitation does happen again. According to the doctor, the surgery was so successful. He said, Dwayne, it could be 20 years before we even have to deal with this again. And I said, well, praise the Lord, because if I have to by myself, I'll make sure Jesus comes back before I go back on that surgery table. <laughs> I don't want to go through that again. I'm not going to lie. But, um, you know, according to all the statistics, about four months after, I had an echo done, and the doctor said, Mr. Lemme, he said, listen, man. He says, if you didn't tell me that you had heart surgery, I, I wouldn't have known. He said, your heart's doing great. And I was just like, wow. Praise God. I prayed that God took this thing away miraculously. Now, I praise him that he didn't. Because if he would have took it away miraculously, I would have missed some of the most vital lessons in my walk with him. And so I accept that every day I see a reminder when I look in the mirror and I change my clothes that, son, you went under a serious procedure. But he's like, I kept you. But one day, God may say to you, as he may say to me, one day he may say, you've finished your course. You've kept the faith. I have a crown waiting for you. But it's time for you to rest now. And maybe God won't heal the disease. Or maybe you'll be like a brother who just happened in Tennessee. Precious soul. Came back from a mission trip. The school called him and said they needed him. Jumped in his car, made a wrong turn, wasn't paying attention. Truck hit him. He is dead. He's a missionary. We don't know when these things will come to us, but God says if you know that my will is not only good, but it's perfect and acceptable, then that should be enough to give you peace that even if I say it's time to sleep, that you can say, it's okay, it's okay. Brothers and sisters, we all cherish life, and we're supposed to, but we're not meant to live forever in this earth in its present condition. There's only one group that will. That's the 144,000, of which we are to strive to be a part of. So, hey, you know, we can strive to be a part of that group. But you know what I learned? The 144,000 will wish that they were dead. In other words, don't get it twisted. Just because we may be part of a group that is translated rather than resurrected, what we have to understand is that group is going to go through something worse than just physical pain. They would welcome death based off of the intensity of the fire-like persecution that we'll see through the beast power. So it's not like, oh boy, I'm I'm part of the 144,000. I get to live and life's good. Listen, family. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There's no easy way out of this. What God says is, I will keep you. What God promises is, I will keep you. And he's by the bedside of those who are getting ready to breathe their last breath. And God is right there helping them as he'll be right next to the warriors that are going to stand against the beast and refuse to yield and say death before dishonor of God and his law is the Christian's motto. He's saying to every single one of us, whether you're going to be translated or resurrected, we're getting ready to go through some very serious, troublesome time. And we can't make it with the faith we presently have. It has to be more deeply cultivated. And the first lesson we've learned in our little time together, we must get to a place that we fully trust God's word. And we depend only on that word to come to pass, regardless of what we see around us. When this happens, we have learned to walk by and not by, and you will be one step closer into eternity. Question. How many of us understood the study? There might be some of us in this room that you have never exercised faith in God. Exercised yeah, you had a measure of faith and maybe you've been living off that same meager measure for years. And you know your faith is running out. And you're at a place where you're struggling trusting God. You're really struggling. And you just want to say, preacher, I just want you to remember me in prayer that I'll get to that precious place that I can really trust him. You see, we will never surrender our lives to someone we don't trust we will never die for someone we don't trust and we will not neither live for someone we do not trust and love is what produces trust so a lot of us don't trust God because we don't love God and we don't love God because we don't know God that's why later in the afternoon, we're going to talk about the vital necessity of communion. I believe with all of my heart, if we can commune with God like Jesus communed with God, we can have real, complete, total victory over every temptation and over every sin. We've got to learn how to commune with God. And I'm going to show you a key. I'm going to show you a precious key that has so much power in it to those that do it. I'm going to show it to you this afternoon. By God's grace, if we get it, again, we're going to go another round on that precious Jacob's ladder. If you know, I'm really struggling to trust God. My faith is fading, and I'm asking you to pray for me. This is not an appeal for everybody. Some of you, you've been growing. Bless your heart. Some of you are not. Some of us are fading. Some of us are probably a ticking time bomb that's soon to blow up in rebellion. And God does not want that for you. We're getting towards the end of the race, family. There is no time to turn back. If Satan can tell angels it's too late to turn back, I believe under the inspiration of God, I can say to you, it's too late to turn back. Satan did it for deception. I do it for encouragement. You have come this far in this faith. You have come this far in your sacrifices and your surrender to Christ. It is too late to turn back. Don't even think about looking back. Press toward the mark. Is my encouragement to each and every one of you. So if you're in that group, if you're in that class and you know faith is waning, getting weaker. I'm speaking to youth, and I'm speaking to adults. This is to everybody who's willing to be real enough with your own heart. If you know you are in that place, and you're saying, preacher, please pray for me, man, that I don't lose faith, that I don't stop trusting God, that I will cooperate with Him better, and that I might cultivate even the lesser than mustard seed faith that I have. I'm inviting you to stand to your feet. You know who you are. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. Because you're going to need prayer. It's not an easy journey, family. It's just not an easy journey. I really want to lift you up. I know that God will help you. He's going to give you strength. You're going to have to endure. I would say without delay. I lie to you not. Because the sun sets early, some of you need to go into Staples, Office Depot, whatever. You need to get your book out. Don't type it. Write it. There's something special about that. I didn't even understand that until I went to the sanitarium. They took away all my electronics. They said, nope, you can't use your computer. You can't use your phone. You can't use nothing. I said, what am I going to use? They said, you got to get a paper. I said, you know how long it's been since I've I've written anything? It's going to look like chicken scratch. They said, well, work on it. Fine. And I started doing it, and I don't know what it was. It made me pay closer attention to the verses because I had to write three words, and then I'll write another three words. You know, in a computer, you can just blind and cut and paste and just put it there. But here, I had to really think about it. And the more that I kept doing that and just writing it down, I was like, man, this is powerful. And it was like I was feeding myself. Oh, it was so deep. I want to encourage you. Get your book. Write down all the verses that speak directly to your heart based on whatever the subject matter is. Then find correlating quotations from inspiration and write those down too. Then find songs. And then when you go to war, that day when you're out there and the devil just starts messing with your head, pick up your book. You go to your page. Out loud, you read those words of God. You read those inspired quotes. You sing those songs. You tell me if angels have not come near by your side. To those of you who are seated, oh, God bless you. You know what I would tell you? I know that those who have remained seated because God has helped them to learn how to exercise faith. I would encourage you, if you know who these people are, ask them, what are you doing? What helps you? And they will share gems with you. And then that way, pick from those gems. There's no big iron little you there. I'm not the master of this. I give you what I can give you, but maybe somebody else has more to give you. The key is, family, the most essential knowledge that the scripture teaches us, more important than any other subject, is the cultivation of faith. May God help us to cultivate faith. For those who remain seated because the Lord has been teaching you, please rise with me that we all can collectively have prayer together and may God continue to bless and keep you as you grow more and still more in trusting and loving our precious Savior. Let us pray. Loving Father, you have seen the hearts of your people, you already knew the conditions. But we have been awakened to our condition. Father, we praise you and thank you for this. Lord, we pray, please forgive us. We still don't trust you. But I'm grateful that you have a heart that can take it. And instead of feeling insulted, you pour out your compassion upon our weaknesses. Lord, I just pray that you'll help us that we might learn how to exercise faith to such a point that we will never, ever murmur, complain, and charge you with folly ever again. Though this might seem impossible with man, we're grateful all things are possible with God. Thank you for a deeper experience, Father. Bless us, we pray.